Thank you, Rhonda and Rochelle. That song, Mary Did You Know, is one of my favorites. I love it. I love it because of the doctrine that is in that song. But then after someone sings that song, the question arises. People actually come up to me and they ask, well, Pastor Monty, did Mary know? And the answer is yes and no. Mary knew some things, but she had no idea of the full extent. She had a hunch. The angels gave her a little bit of a clue, right? But she didn't know everything. And now we look back on the pages of Scripture. We marvel at the person of Jesus. Take your Bible, please, and turn to Isaiah chapter 61. Quickly this morning, Isaiah chapter 61. I'm going to give you several references we're going to look at today. This will complete a three-part series that I began when we examined the one verse, Genesis 3.15, where we said that is where the battle lines were drawn for all the ages. The seed of woman, Jesus Christ ultimately, in direct conflict with the seed of Satan. I think the ultimate fulfillment of the seed of Satan will be the Antichrist. I'll have more to say about that in a moment, the coming Antichrist. But throughout the ages, there has been the epic battle, sometimes referred to in the secular world as the battle between good and evil. But in Christian terminology, it is the battle between God and Satan. It is the battle between light and darkness, and Genesis 3.15 posits that that battle was in full swing after the fall of man. Satan wanted to tempt man into the fall, thinking that somehow he could replace man and having dominion over this earth, but the Lord said, no, no, you do not defeat me that quickly. I have a plan. There will be a woman who will have a baby. That baby, Satan, you will bruise the heel of that baby. But ultimately, that baby will crush the head of Satan. It is, Genesis 3.15, the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. So we looked at that in detail. We also looked at Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is coming to public ministry in his boyhood synagogue at Nazareth. The background to that was several times, including the temptation by the devil, where Jesus proclaimed himself to be the Son of God and God the Son. Then in Luke chapter 4, Jesus read scripture, messianic scripture. He was quoting the passage we read in scripture reading a moment ago from Isaiah 61. And then when he read part of that passage, and he only read part of that passage, He did not read enough of the passage. There were requirements for the reading of Scripture in the synagogue. He cut the passage short, and everybody stared at him because he had dared to violate a tradition. It was a rule. It was a law that they had in the synagogue. And so they were curious, why did Jesus cut this reading so short? There is a reason. But in Isaiah 61, Jesus talks about what the ministry would be, how the battle would be engaged, how the battle would unfold. And he quoted Isaiah 61, and then at one point in his quotation, he said these words. He said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, when he said that, he was announcing himself as the Messiah, That was not lost on the crowd because the crowd said, wait, wait, oh, hold up, wait a minute, isn't this uh, Joseph's son? They'd be wrong about that. Joseph's foster son, not his biological son. Isn't this Joseph's son? And Jesus, sensing their hesitation to accept him, he predicted their rejection of him by citing the two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. 
And he gave an illustration from both of their lives how those men, when rejected by the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, they were accepted by a Gentile audience. That, of course, enraged the folks in the synagogue, and they tried to push him off of a hill. They took him outside and tried to push him off of a hill, but he kind of just walked right through them. I don't know exactly what that looked like. I would have loved to have seen what that looked like, but he kind of just walked through them and went on his way. But remember I said a moment ago, Jesus stopped his reading early. In fact, he cut a verse kind of in half. Something we might wonder about, too, if the minister only read part of the verse and not the whole verse. So your Bible's open to Isaiah 61. I want you to see this. You will recall from last week the words of Jesus that he read in his childhood synagogue, but there's something more. Jesus in Luke chapter 4 read these words, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the good tidings unto the meek, He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That is where Jesus stopped his reading. That is where the synagogue members marveled at him. They stared at him, thinking that was too brief of a section of the prophets to read in synagogue service. Jesus sat down. He would stand while he was reading. It was customary to sit down while you were teaching. Sometimes I think that's kind of nice. I'm not planning on it, but I just think it's kind of nice. Maybe in 10 years, I'll just sit down somewhere. But he sat down while he was teaching, and his words were these. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. We said last week that the engagement with the enemy is proclamation of the person and work of Christ. What is the most valuable thing that I can do in the church age as a Christian to turn back the powers of darkness? Well, Pastor Ronnie, it's have a big political campaign. No, I'm afraid that won't work. The most powerful thing I can do is to explain to this world that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is King, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and God the Son, and that he sacrificed his life on Calvary's cross and shed his blood for our sins that whosoever believeth on him should have everlasting life. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the most powerful thing. That is the gospel that transforms someone from the inside out. But Jesus stopped in verse number two of his reading. He said, I'm come in his first advent, his first coming, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and he stopped right there. Note the next words in verse number two. And the day of vengeance of our God. He didn't read that. He didn't read that on purpose because in his first advent, the day of the vengeance of our God was not in view. That was not part and parcel of his first coming. And so he could only say with all honesty that this day is this scripture, the portion that he read, fulfilled in your ears. After that is yet future. And I want every eye to look up here. I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible predicted the birth of Jesus Christ beginning in Genesis 3.15 and then in multiple references throughout the Old Testament. I believe the Bible predicted his birth. I believe the Bible predicted the time of his birth in the book of Daniel. I believe the Bible predicted the place of his birth in Bethlehem in the book of Micah. I believe that the Bible predicted multiple elements about the birth, the life, and yes, the death of the Messiah Jesus. 
And all of those things were fulfilled with precision, pinpoint accuracy. And every Christian denomination, I'll use the word Christian in quote marks, every Christian denomination would say, yes, yes, we believe those are the fulfillment of Scripture. But listen carefully. At that point, many of them depart. Many of them say, well, you know, Pastor Monty, all the rest of that stuff, that wasn't really fulfilled literally. Or they say that that won't have a future fulfillment. In fact, they get nervous and they say, do you believe that there is prophecy in the Bible that is yet to be fulfilled? And my answer is a categoric yes, yes. And the same manner that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies concerning his birth and then his life and ultimately his death, in that same manner will these verses that are yet unfulfilled one day meet with a literal and real fulfillment. You cannot read the Bible and be honest unless you read it for what it says. And so in verse number two, the Bible says Jesus would proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. What is that? That, ladies and gentlemen, is a direct prediction of what will happen at his second coming. More specifically, it is a prediction of a time period yet future to our day known as the tribulation period. I want you to focus on what I'm saying. Back when we talked about Genesis 3.15, I said, I believe ultimately that the seed of Satan will be the Antichrist, okay? I believe ultimately. By the way, if you want to read about the Antichrist, one of the best books you can pick up, it's by classical theologian Arthur Pink, Arthur W. Pink, The Coming Antichrist, I think is the title of the book. Very, he's an old theologian, but he's excellent. I highly recommend that if you're curious about that. But that has not yet happened. Now, one of the things that you can do when you read things in the Bible, and fully one-fourth of the Bible is given over to prophecy, whether fulfilled or yet to be fulfilled. One of the things you can do when you read the Bible is this. You can ask yourself a question. Has this already happened? It's a real simple question. You read something in the Bible and you say, uh, has this already happened? And if you cannot point to it having been fulfilled, then it is very likely that you're dealing with a passage that is yet future in its fulfillment. And so here when it talks about the day of vengeance of our God, it is talking ultimately about the tribulation period. Now, this relates to the second coming. I need everyone to listen, because I know everybody's on a, a different level here, a different level here. I won't go into this in great detail. I could talk about it for hours, but uh, I want to have lunch too. So we won't go into great detail. We are living in the church age, from the time of the crucifixion of Christ, or you could say Pentecost, until now is the church age. This is the time of grace, this is the time of the great gathering in of the Gentiles. But the Bible says one day the days of the Gentiles will be full, and there's going to be a major change. At that point, the second coming will take place. Now you have to listen carefully. Technically speaking, the Bible speaks of two phases of the second coming. Just as the Old Testament predicted two stages of Christ's coming, his first advent, and what we call his second advent, the second advent has two different parts. Now, one of them is directly related to the church, one of them is directly related to Israel. I want you to listen carefully. God is not done with the Hebrew people. 
God is not done with the nation of Israel. Let me prove a couple things to you. Take your Bible quickly with me. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4 in your Bible. And I'll go through this quickly. 1 Thessalonians 4 describes what is the first phase of Christ's return. It is the phase that is for the church, the believing church. It is for Christians. Sometimes we refer to this passage, by the way, as the rapture of the church. And it's okay to use that terminology. The word rapture doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible, but it is a Latin word that means a gathering up. Now, when I read this to you, I want you to look at it carefully in your Bible and then ask yourself the question I just presented to you, has this already happened? Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 13. Paul says to the Thessalonian church, they were worried because some of the members of the church had died. They were looking for Jesus to come, then some church members had died, and they thought, well, what in the world? Uh, Now they're dead, so I guess they missed the boat, so to speak. Look at verse number 13. Paul said, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, those who are dead, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do you all believe that? Wow. Do you all believe that? Thank you. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, listen to these words, even so them also which sleep, those who are dead, in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep, those who are dead, The fact that they're dead and we are alive does not cause a problem in regard to what he's saying, the return of Christ. Now, verse number 16 is really important, okay? I believe this literally. This has not yet happened, period. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, And the dead in Christ shall rise first. We're talking about the resurrection of the dead. We're talking about believers in Jesus. We are talking about church-age saints. If you know of someone who has died and they were a Christian, this verse is talking specifically about them. That one day, according to and it hadn't happened yet. You know how you can tell? Go out to Granny's grave. She was a believer. Go out to Granny's grave, she's still there. Don't don't dig it up, that'd be weird. Go out to Granny's grave, she's still there. But verse 16 says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then, verse 17, We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Has that happened yet? No. Will it happen? Yes. That is the plain reading of the Bible. Now, I'll tell you, I know, and I'm into theology, I know that there are people that will do anything they can to erase this from Scripture, to change its meaning. But the plain sense of the Bible is this, that if a Christian has died and the trumpet sounds, they're resurrected. Oh, there's a lot more to it that. The Apostle Paul said they'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Why? Because this corruption must put on incorruptible. There's a whole lot more to it. But they'll be raised, then we which are alive and remain. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds. 
Pastor Monty, I just think that that's all figurative speech. Look at me. Figurative for what? There is no reasonable meaning apart from reading it for what it says. And then, verse 18, Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, wherefore, because of this fact, comfort one another with these words. You'll find tremendous comfort in the fact that those who have died are not going to be forgotten about. Tremendous comfort in the fact that at any moment the trump of God could sound. The dead in Christ will rise and we're gathered away. Pastor Monty, what will happen to the church? Pastor Wall will take care of it. <laughs> just, just, just joking. <laughs> He's not here today so I could pick on him in his absence and not worry about getting punched. But um, that is the rapture of the church. You say, well, Pastor, what happens after that? The Bible depicts a seven-year tribulation period. Sometimes in the Bible it's called by different names, many different names, in fact, but a few of the, uh, a few of the more common names would be uh, the, uh, the day of the Lord. You'll see that as a major theme in the Old Testament prophets. Sometimes the words that day are just used to depict this time period. All the time you see that in the Old Testament. Daniel's 70th week is a key to this. Sometimes it's referred to the time of Jacob's trouble. Moses in Deuteronomy called this time period a time of tribulation. And the bulk of the book of Revelation addresses events that will take place during that seven-year time period. And so Isaiah 61 verse 2 describes it as the day of vengeance of our God. But turn over a page in your Bible. Just turn over one page. I want you to see this. Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 6. This time of tribulation period is the day of vengeance of God. And I won't get into all of the detail on that. But at the close of the tribulation period, Jesus will come again. In the rapture, Jesus comes only in the clouds. In the revelation, Jesus comes down. He, we'll use the nomenclature, he touches down on earth in his final return. Now, I'm going to prove that to you in a moment. But look, if you will, at Isaiah 61, verse number 3. The prophet asks a question. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I will speak in righteousness mighty to save. Already these words are very lofty. Someone is coming. Someone is coming with garments that are red in color. Verse 2, the prophet says, Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thine garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? In other words, you're squeezing grape juice, and the redness of the juice gets on your, your clothing. And the answer is given to the prophet, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in mine fury. Their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. Why? Look at verse number four. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Look at me, please. That speaks of the tribulation period when the wrath of God will be poured out upon this world in ways more spectacular than we can possibly imagine. Now, take your Bible. I need you to do this with me. Turn to the book of Zechariah. I know that for some of you, this is probably the first time you've ever heard some of this, so I want to demonstrate things for you from the Bible. In Zechariah chapter 12, the prophet predicts something similar. You say, when will Jesus return? At the close of the seven-year tribulation period, there is a great battle called the Battle of Armageddon. How many are familiar with that? 
Sure you are. Very popular, popular in, in uh, even the secular world to talk about the Battle of Armageddon. Jesus will close, come to close that battle out in absolute victory. Zechariah 12, verse number 1. Look, please, carefully. Zechariah 12, 1. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel... Saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth, that formeth the spirit of man within him, the Creator God says this, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. In that day, the words that day are oftentimes a little, a little flag in your Old Testament for something that is yet future. In that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Now, this is talking about something far more widespread than the opposition of the puny little cowardly, weakling, terroristic group known as Hamas. And by the way, let me say something. They are terrorists. And Bible-believing Christians stand for Israel. I can say that with the authority of the Word of God. That sounds like politics. It's not politics, it's Bible. Bible-believing Christians stand for Israel. There will come a day, according to verse number three, when the people of the earth are all gathered together against Israel. Verse number four, in that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. The governors of Judah shall say in their hearts, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength and the Lord of hosts their God. This is speaking of a battle. Verse number six. And that day will I make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire. They will be invaded by this worldwide conglomeration of armies. But in that day, the Israeli army will have great strength. They'll be like a torch fire in a sheaf. They're going to be ready to burn it all up. They shall devour all the people round about on the right hand, on the left. Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, saith the Lord. Drop down to verse number 8. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He that is feeble among them in that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God. The angel of the Lord will go before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. That has not yet happened. That one day will happen. Why? Because the seed of Satan bruised the heel of Jesus. And Jesus, the Messiah, will crush the head of Satan. Now that has not yet happened but according to a literal reading of Scripture, it one day will. The key point is the day of vengeance will become a day of victory. Take your Bible quickly with me. Turn to the book of Revelation, please. I want everyone to see this from Scripture. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Pastor Monty, the book of Revelation is mysterious. We ought not even read it. There are some theologians that feel that way. It's not mysterious if you take it for what it says. Whenever you try to change it around, that's when it becomes difficult. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. The Bible says, And I saw heaven open, John, the apostle John, writing these words of a vision. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. 
His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Kind of reminds you of Isaiah 63, doesn't it? He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. What does that have to do with Christmas? John the Apostle, in John's Gospel, chapter 1, speaking of Jesus, he called him the Word of God. And he said, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. In his first advent, which we celebrate at Christmas, ladies and gentlemen, the Word was made flesh. In his second advent, the warrior Christ returns to put down the rebellion and sin of this world, to destroy the enemies of the Hebrew people, and on him his name is called the Word of God. There's no question who this victorious conqueror is. Verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who, who is that? The armies of heaven. That's us. The rapture of the church has occurred. We spend that seven years safe and sound out of the wrath of God that's coming upon this earth in order to deal with his people, the Hebrew people. The church is not a part of this. We return with him in the greatest battle the world will have ever seen. The Bible says, Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. He shall tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Does that sound familiar from the prophet Isaiah? I hope you see the similitude there. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, ladies and gentlemen, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. While Satan bruised the heel of Christ, on the cross, and in that bruising blood was shed, and Jesus the Messiah died, providing us redemption, providing us a propitiation for the wrath of God. Propitiation means satisfaction. God's wrath is now satisfied because of the death of his son. Satan's attempt to bruise the heel of Christ won our salvation. By the way, God just flipped it on the devil. I love that. But when Jesus comes, he will crush the head of the serpent. Isaiah 61 also says this, if you'll turn back there. Isaiah 61 says this. The Bible says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. I think that's a reference to the church age. And the day of the vengeance of our God, that is the tribulation period. Note the next one to comfort all that mourn. The world's a big mess, isn't it? I think most of us pray, or could pray from our hearts, the words, even so come, Lord Jesus. But in his second coming, not only will all of the enemies of God and of the Hebrew people be completely obliterated from the earth, but he will comfort all those that mourn. Who are the ones that are mourning? In context, at the end of the tribulation period, it is the Jewish people in Israel who have almost been defeated, who are to the point in the battle of Armageddon of almost total capitulation. But after that, Jesus will present himself to Israel as their answer. You say, Pastor, is that in the scripture? I'd, I'd love you to see it. Zechariah 12, look with me there, please. Zechariah 12, this is so important. Following the tribulation period, you said, Pastor Bonnie, the Jews are not believers. No, not yet. 
Not yet. They're not Christians. They have not received Jesus as their Messiah, but there's a really interesting prophecy in Zechariah chapter 12, and I want you to see this, verse number, uh, verse number 10. Zechariah 12 and verse number 10. The Bible says of that day, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. Note the next words. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Who do they pierce? Come on, who do they pierce? He comes again. He'll come again presenting himself as Messiah, the Bible says in Zechariah 14 on the Mount of Olives. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him. Notice the next words. As one mourneth for his only son. Those words are not coincidental. They are not a mistake. And for Bible believers, they immediately turn us in our mind to the words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. They're going to look upon the one they pierce. They're going to mourn for him. They're going to recognize him as Messiah. The Bible says in chapter 13, verse 1, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. Do you know what comforting words are? Listen carefully. The Jewish people missed their Messiah in his first coming. Pastor Monty, not only did they, 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 they miss him, they rejected him and, and they crucified him. And do you know how big grace is? Grace says, I will wait 2,000 plus years. We don't know what that number is. Grace says, I will wait 2,000 plus years. Well, generation and generation and generation of my people, the Jewish people, reject me, reject my Messiah, turn their back on the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will wait more than 2,000 years. But one day, I will pour upon them the spirit of grace. Look at me, folks. Don't you ever doubt the depth of the grace of God. This is multi-generational grace, and that generation will see Christ return. Many of them will believe upon him. I don't have time to turn there, but Ezekiel 20 says that those who believe upon him will pass under the rod of the covenant. You say, what in the world is that? The new covenant that the prophet Jeremiah promised in Jeremiah 31 to the Jewish people. Ah, oh, Pastor Monty, we're, we're the new covenant. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We get in on part of the new covenant. We get in on part of it. So what part? The spiritual part. But did you know that beginning in Jeremiah chapter 31, there are parts of the new covenant that deal specifically with land, geography, and physical blessings. Well, who does that go to? The Jewish people to whom it was promised. Ladies and gentlemen, God still has a plan. And by the way, he has to. Because the seed of the woman has to crush the head of the serpent. The prophets' promises to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, they must be fulfilled. Oh, Pastor Monty, I, I don't believe that. I, I just believe that, uh, that uh, the promises of the kingdom are fulfilled in the life of the church. You've got to be kidding me. There are people that believe that. Oh, yeah, the, the, the church is the kingdom. May I say something very respectful? If the church is the kingdom, it's really lame. The lion doesn't lie down with the lamb. Get three Baptists together in a room and you have eight opinions. And a fight, unless food is present. 
as pastor of a New Testament Baptist church for 35 years, this is not the kingdom. Well, Pastor Monty, the kingdom is being formed right now in this world. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. The world is in a mess, and it is going deeper by the minute. Oh, Pastor Monty, all these promises about a kingdom, they're not real. There's a whole bunch of people, they call themselves amillennialists. That means an amillennialist is a person who runs around saying, ah, there ain't going to be no millennium. Okay, you can remember it that way. Oh, those promises aren't real. Are the promises of Jesus' birth real? Are the promises of his life real? Are the promises of his death real? Were they fulfilled with literal precision? I dare say yes, they were, and you all agree. Then why can you not see that one day he will establish his kingdom? That one day the head of the serpent will be crushed by the Son of God. The Bible tells us that that day is coming. Not now. Rapture has to happen first. Not now. Seven-year tribulation period where God deals with his people Israel. But when he returns, according to Zechariah 14, and he sets foot on the Mount of Olives, he will establish his kingdom from shore to shore. It will be a worldwide kingdom There will be peace, there will be justice. It will be like turning the clock back to a Garden of Eden scenario. And every one of us who believes on Jesus will be there. If you want to read about that kingdom, by the way, do this. I'm not going to, I got in my notes, but we got no time. Isaiah chapter 60, right before 61. Isaiah chapter 60, read the whole chapter. Read the whole chapter this afternoon. He will rule and reign. That little baby was born in Bethlehem's manger. I think it was one of those royals, that Meghan Markle. She's such an entitled, but anyway. She said, well, Christmas is a time when we should just think about the birth of every baby. No, no. Christmas is a time when Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled, when God became a man, when the seed of woman was manifest in the person of Christ. When according to the battle lines that were drawn, it happened. And we're in the midst of the battle right now, the church age. And one day, that Savior, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who came as the Lamb of God, will come roaring back as the Lion of Judah. And the rebellion and the sin and the idolatry and the filth of this world will be put down, and Jesus Christ will reign for a thousand years. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the message of Christmas. Pastor Monty, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Yeah, when he comes again. Now let me ask you a question. What side are you on? What side are you on? You're either on the side of the serpent or the side of the Savior. There's no middle ground here. What side are you on? We proclaim the gospel because that is the strategy of our opposition to Satan in this time period. But what has been your response? Do you believe? So I just believe what the Bible says. Do you believe? Do you believe that this Jesus was born? Of course, Pastor Monty, we all believe Jesus was born. Do you believe he's the Messiah? 
Do you believe he's the Son of God and God the Son? Do you believe that he died on the cross and shed his blood for your sins? Have you joined his side by believing? If you're here this morning and you've never believed, the Bible says this, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father, please take your word and help us as we've barely scratched the surface. Wonderful prophecy in the word of God. To understand that the seed of woman, our Savior, Jesus, will conquer and one day will rule and reign. Father, it's so crystal clear on the pages of Scripture. But Lord, if there's anyone here who's not exactly sure what side they're on in this great cosmic battle of the universe, I pray, Father, that today they'd come to Christ, recognizing their own sinfulness, and realizing that Jesus shed his blood on the cross for their sins, that he rose again, and that he is a God who is eager, ready, willing to save them. I pray you'll speak to every heart in Jesus' name. Stand with me, please, everyone.